Welcome to the Jazz Shapers podcast from Mishkondorea. What you're about to hear was originally broadcast on Jazz FM. However, the music has been cut due to rights issues. This is Jazz Shapers with Elliot Moss on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. Listening colour. Welcome to Jazz Shapers with me, Elliot Moss, bringing the pioneers of the business world together with the musicians shaping jazz, soul and blues. My guest today is Gordon Sangera, co-founder and CEO of Oxford Nanopore, creators of cutting-edge DNA sequencing and analytics tools. Following his PhD in bioelectronic technology, which he took on, he says, to avoid the potential of an arranged marriage, Gordon worked at Oxford University's spin-out company Medisense, developing electrochemical glucose monitoring systems. But 15 years later, struck by what he calls an early midlife crisis and the end, apparently, of his amateur football career, Gordon sought a new adventure. Together with scientist Spike Wilcox and Professor Hagen Bailey, they convinced Oxford University to launch Oxford Nanoport in 2005. It's aimed to develop a new generation of sensing technology that can read codes of DNA in real time. COVID-19 put Nanoport on the map with a government testing contract and deployment of its virus tracking devices in 85 countries. But their technology is used to answer all kinds of biological questions, to detect cancer, to help authorities crack down on food safety, and even for DNA sequencing in space. My guest today is Gordon Sangera, co-founder and CEO of Oxford Nanopore. Not a name we would have heard of, but for probably, Gordon, what's been going on in this extraordinary last two years. And, and the phrase genomic epidemiology. Again, two words that most mere mortals would not have heard of, thought about, or even understood for a second. And yet here we are in 2022. Here I am talking to you, and the moment has come. Thank you for having me. Yes, indeed. Prime Minister's talking about PCR testing and mutations in genomes. As you know, we recently floated, and we used to really worry and agonise about how we were going to explain what we do and why it's important. But just to rewind a little bit, because we're not just about COVID-19 genomic epidemiology. I want to just take you back to 2003. Bill Clinton talked about the first map of the human genome. It took 10 years. It cost almost 3 billion. So mapping the source code, the DNA of the human genome and all living systems is something that we're very, very interested in. The pandemic has made everybody understand why and how a virus can spread and mutate. And we have been at the forefront of sequencing the mutations from Delta to Omicron. But prior to that, we were also helping out with Ebola in Africa and Zika in Brazil. So this is something, you know, Mm. and we even look at pathogens and infections in plants as well. So much broader Mm. than uh, COVID-19. But but COVID-19 helps to explain and brings it to, to life for all of us, unfortunately, in this pandemic. Well, I think that's right. And I guess the genome point that you said is the underpin, the source code, as you called it. Over the years, as you talked about Zika in Brazil and you talked about Ebola in, in Africa, these, of course, have been things that we've been spectators to. And I think the bringing it into our own lives has, of course, changed our perception of, A, the importance of what you do, and B, of course, the critical application of of fixing things or at least understanding what it is that you might want to fix. Going way back, the science thing when you were a kid, 
because I've got kids and they're now obviously much more interested in science than I think they would have been were it not for SARS-2 COVID. Where did that interest come from in your own life? It's an interesting one. I mean, first of all, I'm old enough to remember the first moon landing. I was a young kid sitting there with my dad, watching it on a black and white TV. And my grandmother said, it will rain tomorrow. They've landed on the moon. <laughs> that was her thing. But, <laughs> but, you know, so becoming really interested. And then when I'd get toys, I'd take them apart. That seemed to be my thing. I wanted to know how they worked. But I kind of fell into science more because I wanted to be a professional footballer. I had some trials for Swindon Town where I grew up. Didn't quite make it. And, you know, a constant theme was, wow, time you got married then. And, you know, coming from a Punjabi family, it was all about a race. First generation. Indeed. And, uh, Seri- it's a serious business being first generation yeah. Punjabi. Gordon. And the oldest. Right. Oh, then, you're, then that's it. That's your it. your yeah. path is mapped. Exactly. Yeah. So I said, well, let me go and do a degree. And I was quite good at chemistry. So that was a default thing to do. And then they said, oh, great. You know, you've got your 2-1 and off you go. Time for an arranged marriage. So I really fell into a PhD in the interface between electronics and biology. And that's just like become the thing I do. It's, uh, you know, for all you youngsters out there, my daughter's just finished a master's, really struggling to think about what your career is going to be and where you want to go. Just, just follow your instinct and, you know, and later on it all looks like it was all consciously made decisions. But right now... You know, just 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 follow your instinct, and uh, you know when you're young, the roads open. You've got a you know, lot of opportunities coming at you. The academic thing to me interests me because often you meet academics, and you are you know you're from academia, and they love what they do, and they stay in that tram line. There aren't many that make a successful transition to the world of business. You're doing both. Is that? every day a thing that's just natural to you because of your family and because of your upbringing or is it something you still sort of square off because the out the outputs are different the, the outcomes that you want from business are different to necessarily what happens in the world of science yeah i i think it, it is entirely the punjabi thing i mean there's you know my dad came over at the beginning of the 60s to do engineering and uh, the family joke is he ended up digging ditches. It was a lot. It was good money, and he sent all that money back. And his four aunts and my grandparents all managed to get over here, but he never fulfilled his academic dream. Mm. And by the time we were, you know, I was in my early twenties, mid twenties, he'd done quite well, and uh, you know, bought several houses as, as that was that generation. And he said, "Let's start a business." So there was always business conversations. Um, and I couldn't think of anything worse than working with my dad. So, so I've always had an interest. And, and in fact, and I did my degree and PhD at Cardiff University, a bit of a backwater, but great education, great professor who kind of, he hauled me in and said, for my final year project, I thought, oh, I'm, I'm in trouble here. And he said, it's a really good project you've written there. Do you want to do a PhD? And it, I was thinking, if I get a pass, I'll be happy. You know, and, and I thought, this is a good exit, isn't it? Arranged marriage is suddenly looking distant again. <laughs> so I said, I'd love to. And, and that set me on that path. But going to Oxford was two things. One, to convince myself, imposter syndrome mm. alert, right? Well, I was going to ask you about that. While you were telling me about this, that you went from thinking, had you passed to 
obviously being asked to become a PhD, you, you looked like, well, I was still shocked. So where's that doubt from? I, you know, I scraped through, through my A-levels with a C and a D, scraped into Cardiff, but I was in a very big and happy, vibrant house, but my four aunts were there. There was four of us, my two, two younger brothers and my sister. It was like noisy. Sounds like a sitcom. <laughs> it's a great idea, the Sangera sitcom. Yeah. I can see it now. <laughs> yeah, you don't get much time to sort of study because yeah. it's like too much stuff going on. But once I got to university, I got a 2-1. I did a PhD. I won an award from the Royal Society of Chemistry. These are all confidence points you pick up. And Oxford, it was a conscious decision to go there to A, tick off, I could do it in the big leagues, but B, to get into this company, Medicines, which back in the early 80s had been spun out when, you know, that whole thing was very alien and new. Mm. And I was very fortunate to skip over. So it was always a plan to go to Oxford to try and get a job in this company where my PhD background could be put to real-world use. That was always kind of the thing for me, more so than becoming an academic. I did interview for some academic positions and I slowly realised it wasn't my calling. I wanted to make a difference in the world. Not that academics don't make a difference, but a, an impactful difference. That seemed to be something very important to me. I want to explore that a little bit later about why you think, why making a difference is so important to you. Stay with me for much more from my guest. It's Gordon Sangera. He's coming back in a couple of minutes. Right now, though, we're going to hear a taster from the Mishcon Innovation Series, a new podcast which can be found on all of the major podcast platforms. Natasha Knight invites business founders to share their industry insights and practical advice for those of you thinking about getting into an industry and starting your very own thing. In this clip, focusing on the health and wellness industry, as we hear from Ruby Rout, CEO and co-founder of Wooka, the UK's first eco-friendly period underwear brand. The Mishcon Innovation Series. Insights from founders for your future business. In association with Jazz Shapers, with Mishkon Dereya. Start at a small scale, something that I learned, and I think one of the reasons that we became successful was when I launched, I only launched with one product. It is very easy to get overwhelmed with like so many choices and willing to give so many choices to people, but create a product that actually does the job and stick to it for quite a bit of longer period of time till you get the grasp of all idea of like how to run the business. Because easily you will get like quite a lot of people come in and telling you like, oh, can you do this in like different style, different colors or with any other wellness product as well? I think so. And you will get like overwhelming feedback. But I guess stick to one thing and do best at one thing before you start diverting or trying a few other different things. I guess the other thing I would definitely would say is like, don't get put off by how much it costs to set up a business. There are so many things that you can hustle your way through in the early stage. Make a prototype, you know, talk to your friends and families. I think that is the best way to get started. I clearly remember this two-day MBA course that I did in, in London called Lean Startup Machine. The idea was you go pitch your idea and if people love the idea, they will form a group and you create a business there and then. So that's how lean you should be. You should not think that, okay, these are the things that are going to be obstacle in front of me, but like do a small steps at a time and hustle your way through the first stages. And that's exactly how I did it. 
the Mishcon Innovation Series in association with Jazz Shapers with Mishcon Derea. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM in partnership with Mishcon Derea. It's business, but it's personal. You can enjoy all our former business shapers on the Jazz Shapers podcast. And indeed, you can hear this very program again if you pop Jazz Shapers into your podcast platform of choice. Or if you've got a smart speaker, why not ask it to play Jazz Shapers? And there you'll find a taster of our recent shows. But back to today, Gordon Sanger is in the hot seat. He's co-founder and CEO of Oxford Nanopore, creators of cutting-edge DNA sequencing and analytics technology. Tell me a little bit about, you mentioned this making a difference and impact. Tell me why, Gordon, that has become a thing for you versus doing, as you said, very important, probably more esoteric, empirical research. There's something in there that says you want to fix stuff. Where's that from? Um, I, I think partly the Punjabi thing again about you must become a doctor. And I couldn't think of anything worse. I'm not really that tactile person who can help people. But there are other ways you can do it. And, and the, the move to Oxford was because the prof had come up with this really amazing way of measuring blood glucose and and his product was going to transform the lives of type 1 diabetics, those who have to inject insulin and in real time could measure glucose. And there were two things. One, there was a lot of backlash from the medical community. You can't possibly allow people at home to test and measure their glucose, they won't understand what to do with it. They won't be able to get clinical-grade results. Yet we did all that, and we transformed the lives of diabetics, and it was such an amazing journey. I remember we were in Atlanta, the American Association of Diabetes, and I had my Medisense badge on. This very attractive nurse came over and gave me a big hug, and I went, thank you. (laughs) She said, my kids are so compliant with their glucose testing now because it's such a simple, easy, Mm. so little blood comes out device. And, you know, and that kind of, you know, that's that's so, you know, gratifying to do something like that in your career. Um, It was great. And then let's let's jump to the beginnings of of Oxford Nanopore and that and that moment that it happens and you find your your two friends, your two scientists and you drink apparently in the local pub and you say, oh, let's go and do it, and you do it. Tell me about those first few months and years when you're trying to get the thing moving. Because obviously I, I, I was doing some research in your, in your launch, your two and a half minutes on the stock exchange. You, there's this little hashtag that comes up at the end of the film which says, I think it was anything, anyone, anywhere. You are now at scale. You're affecting the lives of millions of people in all sorts of different ways, and plants as well, and farming, and all those, inc- I mean, just incredible output. From a small group of people saying we're going to do something, just those first few things that you did to get you on the ladder to this, what were they? Yeah, I think, so Medisense became a great success. It was sold to a big US company, Abbott, for $876 million in 96. And I worked for large pharma for seven years, and it killed me. I am not very good with authority. Um, so, so I was looking around and I kept my eye in on Oxford Innovation and I met two people. There was one chap, Dave Norwood, who'd set up a bank called IP to IPO and they'd put 20 million into Oxford Chemistry and the person responsible for running the Oxford portfolio for them was Spike Wilcox, co-founder, And uh, he and I had a chat in uh, Chiang Mai Kitchen in Oxford, if you know it. 
And I normally went to the gym and I thought, oh, this is what you have to do with these banking types. And we went through this whole list and then I said, no, not interested, never, that's never going to work. And we, you know, and, and then at the very end he said, I've got this single molecule stochastic sensing. And I just had a quick look, I thought, actually, this is very similar to what I did with Medisense. All that learning I can bring over here on how to scale and manufacture and make products, but on a much bigger scale from glucose to the source code of all living systems. Mm. Big leap. But that's that was kind of the beginning of it. And, and I met Dave Norwood and Spike in the King's Arms in Oxford. And over a pie and a pint, they gave me half a million pounds. And I needed that to leave my job. Um, my dad nearly killed me. Final salary pension, new BMW every couple of years, executive in a big farmer. And he just thought I'd lost the plot. And, you know, and it was that sort of early 40s, midlife thing as well. Have I got one big adventure left in me? And I really wanted to go for it. And we got that half million. And I immediately said to Dave, I'm afraid I'm going to hire Spike from you. So convinced him three months after we got going. And uh, that was the beginning of it. Three of us in the lab wondering how we were going to convert this really complicated academic thing into a plug-and-play, affordable, accessible DNA sequencer for anyone, anywhere. So that growth thing, Gordon, that you brought to the party, that ability to take something really interesting from a scientific point of view and then expand it out, really make it applicable, you brought in with you today two toys, which aren't really toys, are they? They're proper things. The little one there is called a... Minion. Minion, not a, not a minion, a minion. And the other one is called, which is a screen... So it's the Minion Mark 1C. The Minion Mark 1C, which sounds like an aeroplane, and that's by design. Yes. Um, these are very beautiful things. If you go online and look at them, you will see they're like something out of Bond. And in fact, in the latest Bond film... There think, was some DNA sequencing that looked a little bit like the Minion Mark right. 1C. So here we are now, 17 years later. These things are real. The world of you know science fiction has become science fact. Just tell me two or three things that took you from that moment in the pub to where we are now that were... Pivotal. Sure. So getting that half million is really important. We were able to look at what we'd done with the glucose thing and produce a little plastic chip and show that we could miniaturize it all and take it away from the preserve of a, a very sophisticated postdoctoral researcher to a little device that you could, a bit like glucose testing, and we had that proof of concept. And with that, we went off to raise, and we raised seven and a half million pounds, but we were very honest. I mean, I'd never done a startup before. I knew how to make technology work, but I, I don't have an MBA or anything like that. But we went in and said, it's going to take five to seven years, probably cost three or four hundred million pounds, which at the time was very disheartening because we just, you know, a lot of people laughed us out of court. But it was an interesting filtering process, so we ended up with patient capital. Mm. which everybody talks about today. In 2006, 2007, it wasn't even a thing. Mm. But we, you got these real, real important visionaries who said, I like this. This could really change the world. They'd put the prof on the spot. So Spike, the prof, and I would go out on these roadshows, and they say, can we do DNA sequencing? We had all these projects we could do, and that was the hardest. And he said, yeah, it's possible. And that was it. So we got funded for that. And three years in... Everything we'd done didn't work. 
So we had a real tough moment where we had to switch gears. And we'd funded research in the Prof's lab and in California. And literally in the same month, they made two iconic breakthroughs on the, the future stuff. We were thinking that's next generation because the stuff we were doing was going to work and it had failed. And we were staring at it, this and thinking, this is all going to come to an end. In that same month, in like 2009, over Christmas, these two breakthroughs came and within 90 days, it started working. So all the stuff we'd done for chemistry A, if you like, mm. we just plugged it into chemistry B and we were off to the races. Can I ask about this? Because obviously you get to that point, three years in, you're going, we're going to give up. And obviously tenacity kicks in and resilience and all those other things. But in terms of the actual science, was it simply, and obviously as, as a non-scientist here, is it just trial and error? Or was it something magical? It's, it is, a lot of it is really just like in industry, it's trial and error and you just got to keep, keep tweaking, going, keep, keep tweaking, going, keep, keep tweaking. Push, push, push yeah. until the dam breaks. But you do need, you know, we'd funded this research, so it was partly by design, but you do need to be in the right place at the right time. And, you know, those academics had been working at this for 15 years. And it just somehow, there's this catalysis that happens, the company's there, they've got more impetus, we've got more impetus, and it does create the perfect storm. So there's a little bit of happenstance mm. and luck, but a lot of it is if you pour money into something, it you comes. can make it happen. And just for, uh, briefly, um, before we go into our final chat and a bit more music, what's the feeling like when that Christmas, going back to 2009, and you know the breakthroughs have come? For you, if you can remember the emotion. Oh, I do. The mantra used to be, we'll sequence by Christmas <laughs> to investors. We just never say which Christmas it was going to be. <laughs> And, and it was like just after Christmas, but it was unbelievable. And if you fast forward to 2012, we went to a conference in Florida where all the, the great and good of genomics go. And our CTO, Clive Brown, gave a talk and showed the proof of concept. Because this, this idea had been around for 20 years from the academics. He showed the proof of concept and it was phenomenal. It wiped off almost a billion on the market cap of the others. And I remember standing on that balcony in Florida with the academics and having a glass of champagne. And Professor Dan Branton at Harvard, who just had his 90th birthday a few weeks ago, he said, Gordon, savour this moment. And I've never forgotten that balcony. So that three years then from it working to that moment was, was quite, quite a great, it was a great journey. It's so much fun. There was only about 60 of us. You know, everybody by their first names. It was so good. Stay with me for my final chat with Gordon Sangera. We've got a touch of Mardi Gras from Lonnie Liston-Smith as well. That's in just a moment. Don't go anywhere. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. Just for a few more minutes, my brilliant guest today, Gordon Sangera, is with me. So fast forward, 2022, you float last year, you've got a market cap of three and a half billion pounds, give or take, depending on which day and what time it is, Gordon, obviously, as we know the, the, the wonderful nature of being a public company. You've gone from 60 people to 800 people, give or take. That thing you said to me stuck, and I want to ask you about how that's going for you. You said you wanted to make an impact. You said you wanted to make a difference. Just give me a sense of how that, this is an example of how that's happening right now. Yeah, so a couple of weeks ago at Stanford, 
somebody took our platform. So today you've been looking at the handheld devices and and then sort of using computing as an analogy, this is like a handheld or a desktop, but we have a high-density supercomputer as well, which is primarily used for large projects such as whole human genome sequencing. And that device can sequence 48 genomes in four days for less than $500. Remember I talked about 10 years, three, 3 billion that's what it took. That's the pace of innovation. But what you can also do is instead of doing 48 genomes over four days, you could do one across all 48 channels. And that's what Stanford did with 15 really hard to diagnose patients, critical care patients, and half of them, they were able to go from blood sample to actionable clinical data same day. And the sequencing time on that was two hours. So. That just tells you we are rapidly heading into the genomic era. And, and, you know, this is just the first of many, many breakthroughs in medicine that will happen. And it's just so humbling. And so I'm so proud to be part of this revolution that these amazing researchers are now applying. It's great. And this genomic era that we're hurtling towards now, what else... What else, if we were if we were forecasting, if we were having this chat in 10 years, what else is going to be a tick? We've done that. So we've got, so gene editing is happening now, which is great. That's so the we, CRISPR that's stuff. Right. That's yeah, the whole, that's, that's, amazing. Indeed. So, you know, we talk about mutations in COVID-19, right? Yeah. You could undo them. So the Duchenne's yeah. issue could be yeah. addressed through the that's CRISPR right. technology. And so doing that editing and checking it's all right. So reassuring people that it's, you know, not going to get out of control, I think is really important. But we talked about infectious disease, COVID, but plant pathogens, real problem for, you know, food, security and safety. I think this pandemic has now resulted in everybody thinking about surveillance continually all the time and antimicrobial resistance over prescription of antibiotics is something we're all going to have to stop doing and get used to testing to say, actually, antibiotics aren't going to help. Beyond that, there's a whole lifestyle thing. Personalised training, it already happens at elite sports level. You know, look at people's DNA and their propensity to high-intensity training or whatever it is, tailoring it, tailored diets, tailored skin products. This is all coming. People are more and more understanding the source code and all the organisms that live in us and on us. And it's going to be really exciting. It's, It's the future. Will Swindon Town win the Premiership one day with your help? That's the question, though. No, I don't think so. I thought I'd ask. It's been really lovely talking to you, Gordon. Thank you. And amazing, kind of mind-blowing and phenomenal. That that stat from it took 10 years to it takes two hours, I think kind of makes the point. Just before I let you go, what's your song choice and why have you chosen it? So I came to jazz and soul and funk through punk and through really Paul Weller, who's been a constant in my life. And he's mellowed over the years, and so has my musical taste. But very early on, he covered Move On Up that really led me into a journey towards jazz, soul and funk. Curtis Mayfield, Otis Redding. I mean, that was it. It just opened up a whole new thing for me. And it's been a mantra of my life. At 42, I left Medicense, and my dad thought I'd gone mad. But it was all about one more adventure and move on up. And recently, somebody asked me, as we'd IPO'd, was I going to head off into the sunset? I said, you're joking. This is the beginning of the fun, you know. The use cases that are going to come. 
So it's always move on up. Curtis Mayfield with Move On Up, the song choice of my fantastic business shaper today, Gordon Sangera. Message to everybody, go with your instincts from a young age. It's a long way forward and you may as well choose the thing you really want to do and are passionate about. He talked about wanting to make a really big difference and an impact on the world, real-world use of the clever things and the clever stuff that he has been thinking about for much of his academic life and now in his business life. And finally, the fact that he said he was proud to be part of this genomic revolution. It says everything you need to know about the man and the thing he's trying to achieve. That's it from me and Jazz Shapers. Have a lovely weekend. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mish Kondorea. It's business, but it's personal. We hope you enjoyed that edition of Jazz Shapers. You'll find hundreds more guests available for you to listen to in our archive. To find out more, just search Jazz Shapers in iTunes or your favourite podcast platform or head over to mishcon.com forward slash jazz shapers.